really a, a, a true healer, a true healer creates a space for someone else to help themselves heal and to heal their own hearts. On today's Big Self Show episode, we're happy to present Harvard-trained physician, clinical cardiologist, and certified mindfulness meditation teacher with 20 years of clinical experience, Dr. Jonathan Fisher. He himself survived burnout and rediscovered his joy at work the hard way. He's now committed to ending workplace burnout and optimizing peak performance in healthcare and the corporate world. Dr. Fisher wears a lot of hats and he's a man of many talents. He has done everything from leading keynotes to leading corporate wellness retreats and he does department-wide team building meetings and he is a doctor and he is a thought leader in the space. So it's really great to be able to have him on the Big Self Show. And I think that you will find our conversation really insightful and very helpful. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. Jonathan Fisher, welcome to the Big Self Show. Uh, thank you so much, Chad. I'm really excited to be here and for our conversation. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. And 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 you're you're a medical doctor, FACC. Could you could you tell our audience what that means? <laughs> sure. It's alphabet soup. Uh, every doctor, <laughs> it's like it's not enough to be an MD. You have to add these other letters after your name to feel real special. Um, but in all <laughs> in all seriousness, uh, so I decided after my general medicine training to do mm -hmm. uh, several more years of advanced training in the heart, and so I'm a cardiologist and. Our major national U.S. organization is called the American College of Cardiology. We have a major journal. And once you get into that, you're called a fellow. So F-A-C-C. -C. Awesome. You know, I think for I think the best way for you to introduce yourself to our audience is just to tell us, you know, there is a lot of burnout in physicians and clinicians, uh, especially you have your own kind of unique uh, burnout story. Could you could you tell us what your burnout story was and how how you shifted priorities um, mm. when you experienced the I guess you could say the gift of burnout. Mm. I love how you said that the gift of burnout and I wish I had that ability to reframe my own story and narrative ten years ago. It took me a while before I could even embrace the the suffering or as some people say. It's not a curse, but embrace the suck of it all. Um, mm -hmm. But I'll have to say that it was really a very painful journey, a very personal and private journey mm -hmm. that uh, part of my own healing, and this is what I've learned, part of the healing of burnout, of anxiety, of the depression that I had was learning to share the story first with myself in a private corner of a meditation cushion in a journal with a therapist, with a close friend, with my wife, and then gradually expanding the circles of sharing so that now, it, skipping forward, it's becoming more of a mission to find whatever parts of my own story as a cardiologist who busted his butt to try to get into Harvard and to get all the accolades, uh, found himself deeply unhappy and alone, stuck in my own mind with a heart that was closed off to the world. And now I'm looking for parts of that story that I can share with patients to know that, hey, you're not, you're not alone here. Um, your doctor may not even know that they're struggling. 
And also as an inside story that if you're ever seeing a doctor, just know that the rate of burnout in the medical profession is around 50% right now. And it's rising rapidly. It was there before COVID around 45%. And now we're closer to more than one in two doctors has many of the signs and symptoms of burnout. In terms of my own story, I was a sensitive kid, grew up in suburban New Jersey in a wonderful, rich house with uh, lots of conversations about science. My mom was a quantum physicist and a physics professor, uh, <laughs> born in the Depre Great Depression, older parents, and she loved Albert Einstein. So she said, I'm going to be a physicist, even though women don't do that in the 1950s and 60s. And my dad was the town doctor for a small little town of about 25,000 back then. And he took that leather bag and got in the station wagon, drove around town. And first thing you know it, my oldest brother, Eddie, went on a house call with my dad. He said, yep, I like medicine. This is cool. My sister, Laura, came a year later. She said, yep, this is cool. Naomi, David, Andrea, Daniel, and me. So seven children all followed my father's footsteps going into medicine. So medicine was in my blood. And serving others was important to us. And at the same time, however, we were great at science, but we were not so good at self-awareness, expression and awareness of emotions. There was no conversation of emotions at the table. So I found myself with a very uh, worrying personality, uh, trying to serve and help others, which in retrospect, I realized was a coping mechanism for uh, not feeling like people were there to help me when I needed it most. And so that's just a glimpse into the burnout story. There's lots and lots of details of, of loss, uh, personal loss, and also um, the stress and strain that our healthcare system puts on each and every provider. Uh, the golden days uh, where people think that the doctor goes and plays golf on Wednesdays, those are, those are a thing of the past. And right now, it's hard enough as a patient for me to get in to see a doctor within a few months. So we have... a a problem in this country with access to health care and also quality of health care. So um, I'm happy to share any parts that would be helpful for your listeners, but it took me about 10 years to work through some, some really profound uh, anxiety, uh, harsh inner critic, uh, isolating depression, and then burnout went along with that within my career. Wow. Well, th thanks, first of all, for your openness and vulnerability and sharing uh, parts of your own struggle. I think that that does help in the healing. And you're also in this sense, helping others, helping it be something to, yeah. I mean, while there are things that are private, that it's uh, nothing to be ashamed of to have struggled with, yeah, things that often are related to what's going on with me. I'm not even aware uh, of it. And that's, that is a lot of the work that, that we do. You know, one of the things you just said that, that it strikes my curiosity, Bell, I don't know how far we want to go down this road, but you know, is, why are so many physicians burning out? I, it does seem like a demanding profession to me, and I'm sure it's cultural, but it, is the system more broken? Is the, What's going on? I don't know. Maybe give yeah. us a lay of the land. Absolutely. I'm happy to. And this is, just to put it in historical context, you know, it's commonplace now for many people to say, you know, I'm burned out. And yeah. referring to burned out at home, burned out walking, <laughs> walking down the street, burned out at work. But looking back in the mm -hmm. 1970s, when burnout started to enter the scientific literature, 
you know, it was really a, a therapist in New York who said, there are certain professions, first of all, forget That's about right. the work you do, certain professions that are more prone to burnout. And it tends to be ones where there's an additional level of emotional labor. So emotional labor is a term that I hadn't really thought about. I, I just thought I was giving people aspirin and helping fixed heart attacks. But really, a, a, a true healer, a true healer creates a space for someone else to help themselves heal and to heal their own hearts. And yet, if we're not sophisticated about how we deploy our empathy, about how we help other people, we can end up spilling too much of our own cup and ending empty. So in the 1970s, it was discovered that this can lead to depletion of the caregiver. Now that can apply to a teacher, to a doctor. Uh, and then later in the 80s and 90s, Christina Maslach, who was a professor in California at Berkeley, who discovered that there were three common aspects that anybody in the workplace who was feeling like they were at the end of their rope that they all had in common. And I know you're familiar with these. Uh, it might be useful for, to review them. There are three aspects, yeah. three aspects to burnout, and we have to understand these, and then we can start to get to the answer to your question, which is, mm -hmm. well, where does it come from? So the first aspect is the one that it's kind of easiest to talk about. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. Physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted. End of the day, go home to your kids. You've got nothing left. You gave at the office. And so this is one aspect of burnout. A second aspect of burnout is this feeling that you've trained to do something, to do it really well, to become a master at it. Imagine if like you learn to be a, a violinist and you're in the first chair of the symphony and then suddenly right before you start the concert, somebody sneaks up and they just play with your tuning pins and they, they detune your violin so it all sounds like, like cacophony. It's kind of like that. So part of the reason we have burnout in healthcare is that, you know, we've done all this training to learn how to care for people. And often we have systems and elements of systems. And it, it could be something as simple as nobody's looking at the printer paper to something as complicated as we have a boss who never learned how to talk with people with emotional intelligence and empathy. So up and down the chain, the experience of working in the hospital or healthcare system often is flawed and toxic and psychologically unsafe, partly because of we don't train our healthcare leaders uh, to pay attention to those things as much as to the bottom line. And then the third aspect of burnout, I know I'm, I'm laying a lot here. This um, is great stuff, no, okay. please. Just feel free to stop me at any point and we can go in a different direction. So we've, oh, talked, sure. about, we've talked about you know the three cornerstones of burnout are exhaustion, there's this feeling of ineffectiveness or sort of a blocked mastery. And then for me, the one that I, that I say for the last that I think is the most concerning and the most really soul depleting is this deep feeling of some people call it cynicism. Some people call it depersonalization, which is really mm -hmm. dehumanization. And I can tell you that as I walked through my burnout journey, I'm ashamed to say that I would look at my list of patients and I wouldn't think at all. How can I help these people? It was, how can I get through? How can I get through these people? How can I get on to the next? And so we have these three elements, and you can sort of see here now where the causes are coming from. In order for me, someone who was sensitive, kind, loving, compassionate kid, to have my <laughs> empathy gradually eroded and stripped away during my medical training, and part of that is we're trained to act like surgeons and to act like military, where we're not supposed to care. We're, we're taught 
to stuff our feelings down. So mm -hmm. we have on the one hand, a culture teaching the trainees to ignore, repress, negate their own emotional experience. At the same time, we have a, a medical industrial complex that's designed to seek profits in a capitalist society sure. that often is at the expense of the well-being of the individual. So it's a very fascinating, complex picture. It's an interplay between the dynamics of the system, which is the majority of the problem now in toxic workplaces, and the dynamics of the within our own mind and within our own heart, which is, and both are fascinating for me. Wow. It's fascinating to me too. And do you sense that something's going to come to a head or is it going to just continue to be more of the same? How much of a voice in the wilderness do you feel like maybe you are on issues like this or how much is the past at least decades worth of research with the neuroscience and more awareness of what's going on in the brain and how it's connected to our emotional state and our physiological, how much of that do you think is making any kind of a difference? It's a, it's a great question. And if I listen behind that question, it's, it's really, it's a question about, do we have reason for hope? And that's <laughs> right. What I, that's what I'm hearing. And yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm biased. I carry a cognitive bias of hope <laughs> and others <laughs> might say that, you know, you see hope and optimism in places where there's no room for it. Even if I'm, you know, in pain or in, 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 in grieving, uh, there's always reasons for hope. So mm. I have to explain in advance that that's the lens that I see things through. Sure. Um, I will tell you that if you interviewed me 10 years ago, I, I really was struggling to find any signs of hope, deeply cynical. And many of my colleagues around the world, and I've I created a global summit to end burnout. Two years ago, we had a thousand attendees, physicians and nurses and healthcare leaders from around Fantastic. the world. Fantastic. From 43 countries. And so I really did some deep listening then. And what I heard is a lot of hopelessness. Is anyone going to make a difference? Mm -hmm. Getting to the second part of your question, you asked if it feels like I'm, a, I'm, I'm crying in the wilderness. And I kind of described myself initially like a lone nut. Especially as I, I said, well, you know, we need to look at this thing called mindfulness and, and we need to talk about compassion. And this was back in 2012 when I gave a medical grand rounds to the hospital and said, hey, guys, you know, if we bring a little more of this self-awareness, but at an organizational level, and if we bring this thing called compassion, but really inject that, we're going to start putting care back into healthcare. So it's not about just fixing illness, but it's promoting health and care. So I, I don't feel anymore like I'm a lone voice in the wilderness. I do feel that because I've developed, I've worked through a lot of my own pain and, mm -hmm. some, and I've, I'm learning even now, even in this conversation, how to share in a meaningful way. Uh, I hope I'm setting a path for others who want to make change in systems, but feel like there is no hope. And the path is always just share your story, share what you learn from your story and listen deeply to the suffering of others with empathy. Well, I love that message. And you're right. It can feel discouraging when we're up against an industrial complex, a system that doesn't feel like it's going to change. Uh, and I'm sure the teachers must feel that too in our educational system. Uh, you'll need to, before this conversation's over, tell us more about the summit and we can get that in the show notes and uh, and let our audience know. Uh, that sounds 
terrific. And in only a couple of years, you're getting a thousand people to attend. That's an accomplishment right there. Um, well, let's, um, if we can shift a tiny bit and could you just nerd out with us just for a moment and tell us about like, what is going on in the body physiologically when we're under stress? We've been, we, you know, we do talk a lot about stress and just last week with Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, um, who authors of the micro stress effect, they, they told us about all these different categories of stress uh, but from you, I think we can learn about like a little bit about like physiologically, or at least in our heart, what's, what's going on? It's such a fascinating question, Chad. And I realized that the pursuit of that answer was going to be part of my, my mission is to understand what are the nerves in the brain saying to the heart and what are the nerves in the heart saying back to the brain and what chemicals are released and how does that impact what I see in my clinic and the hospital every day, which is people coming in with heart attacks, often caused by emotional stress, like profound anxiety, untreated depression, hostility, rage, PTSD. We mm. may just put those in a box and say, oh, that's just the emotional problem. Go see a shrink. I can yeah. tell you that that attitude, that approach of separating our hearts of, well, that's an emotional heart problem. I'm a, I'm a physical heart doctor. That's not going to cut it in the future of healthcare. We have to start thinking and realizing that there is just one heart. And so the explanation for how that works is just very simplifying here and also saying, I'm not a neuroscientist. And I think yeah. a lot of us love neuroscience and I know some real serious neuroscientists, but I've been in medicine now long enough to know that anything we say today with confidence about what exactly is happening in the brain and serotonin causing you know, unhappiness or happiness, we will be proven wrong. So I just want to put that out there. I'm someone, <laughs> I firmly believe in a, a philosophical concept that's called epistemic humility, which just means if we're stating a fact, we should be humble about that fact that it may change and not no. slip into dogma. And so I find that a very helpful guidepost for me when I'm asked to speak about these things. With that being said. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's, with that that's wonderful. So with that preface, you know, you know, a, uh, you and I are, are walking outside and somebody starts to attack us, let's say, or we think someone's going to attack us. There's a large man coming at us quickly out of the corner of our eyes. So right away, we, our attention is directed to that, whatever it is, we start to perceive whatever that threat is. Uh, you and I may make different meanings out of it. You may think someone's coming to give you a hug because I was uh, hurt years ago. I think someone's coming after me. So there's this initial element before we get to the heart of where's our attention going? How are we perceiving that? And what is the meaning we're making of this event in the outside world? If we're okay. talking about stress specifically, and we can flip the script in a few minutes and talk about the opposite of stress, which is flourishing and joy and well-being... If we're talking about stress, we're appraising or making meaning of this event as something that's threatening to us. Yeah, before yeah. any stress, before any stress is perpetuated or sustained in our body, in our mind for days or weeks, we have to have made some meaning out of an event that happened, right? And oftentimes, right. And oftentimes working with stress requires that we get back to the original meaning making of that first threat perception. So we've got this event, we have a perception of threat that happens because usually of our eyes or our ears or our touch. 
And then in the brain, we have this alarm system in the limbic system that's at its root, these little almond-shaped nuggets that's called the amygdala. We have one on either side. And these, some people say it hijacks our uh, stress response system. But this is kind of like the alarm bell that there's danger afoot. And this amygdala then does a lot of things in a very short period of time because as we've evolved for millions of years, we had to learn to get away from danger quickly without thinking, without thinking. So on, the right. one, so on the one hand, the amygdala activates the body for movement, either towards this menacing character or running away, or if we're overwhelmed completely and we can go into that response, we freeze or we fawn and we, we, we get bow down to this person. But usually it's a fight or a flight. And we don't often stop to think, well, how does that happen? We've got an amygdala in the brain and suddenly we're running. Well, in order for that to happen, the amygdala has to activate what's called the sympathetic nervous system. Oh, yes. Our, our excitement system. And it has to deactivate the parasympathetic, the, the part of our nervous system that's constantly helping us digest and relax. So there's this instant shift towards the parasympathetic. At the same time, remember we said that to find safety, we can't even think about our response. So there's a shutting down, a literal deactivating or quieting of the, what's called the prefrontal cortex that's the front of our brains, the most modern part that's supposed to help us really have rational thought and make good decisions. So we get stressed, that shuts down. Our ability to be compassionate shuts down. So what's called the social engagement center. If I'm anxious or depressed or afraid or angry, I'm not going to give you a hug. I'm going to either fight you or run away. So now in the moment that I could use your help, I've pushed you away. And now getting into the heart, the sympathetic nervous system releases chemicals, cortisol, adrenaline, mm -hmm. dopamine, epinephrine. It tells the kidney adrenal glands to release these chemicals. And then these chemicals float in the bloodstream, travel all around the body. And in the heart, they make the heart beat really fast, really strong and forceful. In the blood vessels, they squeeze the blood vessels. So you can see the blood pressure is going to rise when we're stressed. We're going to get palpitations in our chest. And it actually can thicken the blood. You'd say, well, why would stress thicken the blood? Well, from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, early humans or hominids who developed the ability to thicken the blood in response to stress, if that bear cut them and they were bleeding, the blood would clot more quickly. And wow, so it was that's incredible. It was an advantage. But now, mm -hmm. skip to the future. It's no longer a bear. It's now someone doesn't like a post on Instagram or LinkedIn, or somebody doesn't say hi to me or friend me, I still have the perception of threat. I have this, this prospect of being isolated. Isolation is the worst danger there is in our modern society, as it has been for thousands of years of tribal living. And with this new threat, we have this old activation of blood clotting, which can then happen in our hearts. And so for all these reasons, a simple stress response, but usually maintained over a period of time. Like for me, over years, I was nervous about lots of little things every day. I was living in a constant state of sympathetic overdrive. My amygdala was ringing all the sirens. My blood vessels were constricted. So all these things happen. And now you can begin to understand the deep connection between the number one killer of men and women everywhere in the world, which is coronary artery disease, which is what I see every day, and the number one mental health 
an emotional challenge we're seeing at rising rates in the world, which is a combination of anxiety, depression, and PTSD. They are deeply intertwined. That was so well spelled out. I mean, you nerded out and yet you you went down and you you brought us along. Thank you for that. So and also, you know, we get a lot of um, you'll see a lot of in in books or you know, we're 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 no longer running from Jaguars. Yeah. And that's it's right. But you just kind of spelled out all, all these different detailed ways that we were we've evolved to have these really responsive, adaptive um, abilities, for lack of a better word. And now technology and the culture that we live in is inducing these responses that we weren't even supposed to necessarily have to be aware of. Mm. That's not how we were designed. It, it wasn't something that we had to use our prefrontal cortex to, to do. Are you tired of the same interpersonal team drama? And most importantly, are you tired of getting the same results? If so, it's time for your team to level up their leadership skills. Big Self has what you need from company-wide Enneagram assessments at the best price, the test for subtypes two, and a dynamic LCP 360 profile. We can help your team improve their communication skills, trust building, giving good feedback, develop self-awareness, and simply put, deliver at a higher level of leadership than anyone thought possible, especially in the dance of stress we're all dealing with no matter what industry we find ourselves in. We do customizable two-hour, four-hour, and all-day trainings. Let us know how we can help. And to find out more, go to bigselfschool.com backslash organizations. Some of the answers sometimes seems to be you need to have a practice. You need to be aware of what's triggering you, but you also need to figure out what you need to let go of or include. Mm. I don't know what you advise to your patients when you see them under these extreme experiences that they're living out of. Mm. You know, you okay, you mentioned isolation, we probably do for our emotional well-being. I think we know we need to connect. How do we go about doing that? Mm. How, how can we find real connection? Mm. I love that question. And it really gets to the heart of what's most important for me. Uh, because I was uh, lonely as a kid a lot. I was mm. really stuck in my own head. I, on the one hand, very creative and imaginative, imaginative. But on the flip side of that, when the imagination runs wild, I was able to imagine scenarios and dangers and future outcomes and stories that other people might be saying about me that uh, it caused me to live with uh, a fear uh, that I couldn't even put my finger on. Hmm. And so, so I was isolated in my own mind. And I often would stand at the edge of parties if I would even go at all. Uh, I would often avoid social gatherings because of, I thought other people were thinking about me or talking about me. And this is just very real world stuff mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people have. So to answer yes. your question of how do we connect more, I start from a, a place that may be not intuitive. When I read, you know, the Surgeon General, right. thank goodness, Vivek Murthy, just last week released 
what I thought was a very beautiful report that said our, our perhaps our number one problem right now as a society is loneliness and social isolation. For the reason I, I saw, I saw him interviewed on. I, I've got the a link. We'll put it in our show notes that he released. It was just May third, mm-hmm. I think, that he released it, and he did a whole interview on CNN. I was yeah. really impressed. So this message here is super timely. Super timely, and he wrote a book also called Together about loneliness. So, which I would recommend. Mm-hmm. So for me, the way to feel less lonely and more connected has to start within ourselves. And it has to start with a connection within ourself. And, and we can also receive connections with others. We can learn to be open to that. We can pay attention to oh, when someone else reaches out or calls or texts me, how do I respond? Do I open the door to my heart or do I keep people at arm's distance? And if that's the case, what happened to me in the past? Who hurt me in the past? That I'm still remembering that person and projecting that fear of rejection and that's keeping me separate from people that would otherwise be there for me now. Mm-hmm. So with that as a background, before I recommend to the listeners saying, well, go join a new club and learn a new <laughs> hobby and yeah. you know, go to the park and meet some people at a bar, that would not be my recommendation. My first recommendation as a cure for loneliness is be with yourself in a quiet place for a few moments and just notice what happens. Notice if there are any thoughts in the mind Notice if there's a voice in the mind that's been there for your whole life and notice what that voice is saying. And if that voice is saying something like, you suck, you're a loser, you're no good and you're never going to make it, you're feeling alone inside your own mind, not only alone, but threatened. And so the work before we can have uh, my patients and I always ask them that when they come in the door before as long as they're not having a heart attack now, before I talk about nutrition and diet and smoking and give them an exercise regimen, before mm-hmm. I do any of that, yeah. I say, tell me about your family. Tell me about your friends. Tell me about your hobbies, your activities. And if the answer is, I can see this person is isolated and alone, that's a huge alarm bell that this is as bad as, they were, as if they were smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, as bad as if they had diabetes in terms of predicting their risk for a heart attack. So I take this dead seriously. Yeah. And, and I get into what is that voice like in your head? And then there's a lot of work, as you know, yes. of how can we work with that voice? So eventually it may take a week, a month or a decade or a lifetime. But eventually I think loneliness is only solved when that harsh inner voice becomes a loving, nurturing, warm, and supportive parent to ourselves. Reconnecting with the self before you think about going out and joining the softball team. <laughs> uh, I, I love it. It's not just tips and tricks and here's how you go engage with others. Uh, that that was profound. It, it, it's the work that we do. And I think that's why like, there's thousands of years of wisdom that says, Start with yourself, know yourself. But then there's a whole lot of reasons why we have to be told to do that. We're very defended and we're scared, uncomfortable with that, what we will hear and what that may bring up. Mm. There's so many directions I'd like to explore, but you've already just given us such a helpful lay of the land. Do you want to tell us any personal practices that, that have worked that work for you right now? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I can I can give. Um, so in medicine, when you are first taught as a first year medical student, first week medical student, if someone says, can you can you tell me what to do? Um, 
we back up a moment and we create what's called a differential diagnosis, which is rather than me giving a practice, I can give my personal practice. I, I'm really interested in you and interested in the listener and what would be most helpful. So I, uh, again, this comes back to my personal approach, which is I'm, I'm, I, I've got a hundred tips and tricks, which I will give. And I find it more helpful to actually give someone a fishing pole rather than the fish itself. And so, uh, so, so with that being said, um, I think it's, it's helpful to look at the different ways of healing, the different ways of healing. So to answer your question briefly, for me, it starts in the morning. I set an intention. I connect with a sense of gratitude, love, optimism, and hope. I reconnect with that intention throughout the day, whatever I'm doing. If I'm going to the gym, it's to get stronger or more flexible. If I'm about to see a patient, it's to be loving and kind and support someone who's in suffering. So for me, the core practice is intention and then asking myself, what do I want? Stepping back from that, I would say if somebody is struggling, stressed out, feeling like they're in the middle of their life and they just are spinning their wheels and not connecting deeply with things, I, I tend to like the framework of positive psychology. Mm -hmm. Positive psychology is this idea that, you know, Sigmund Freud was great, but he basically wanted to help people get from being miserable to just somewhat unhappy. And he literally <laughs> said that. And so, yeah. And that reminds me of what you said about, I actually, if we can come back, like, what do you see in people who are flourishing? Exactly. Exactly. So that's the, so for me, the starting point to these tips and practices and what I do every day is I actually think about these aspects of flourishing and I, I'm a nerdy guy. So I created my own checklist and I created an acronym around it so that I can remember it. And then mm -hmm. other people, I've rolled it out to my healthcare system and I presented at the international conference for physician health in Orlando last year, this specific paradigm. If you want to hear about it, I'm happy mm -hmm. to share. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. What is it? It's something yeah. memorable. So, so the field of positive psychology started in really 1950s U.S., but then 1998, this head of the American Psychological Association, Martin Seligman, said, flag in the ground. We're not going to focus on thinking about people as being broken. We're going to flip it around and we're going to think, okay, we're all either flourishing or languishing. And if mm -hmm. we're languishing, how can we get to flourishing? And he, he, he laid out this framework. And for me, the only issue was that it didn't make a linear sense. It was like lots of tips and tricks. So this is called the space framework. Okay. And so space fr framework is the S. And the reason it's called space, <laughs> the reason it's called space is because remember that example of someone's coming to attack us on the street and we have this moment of decision, the greater the space we can have there, as was said, between stimulus and response, we have a, a space to make our choice. And in that choice lies our power and freedom. That's Victor Frankl's quote. Well, I so, love that. And also coaches hold the space with the client. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what came to my mind is where we, we like to hold, we're holding that space. It's a trusting space where they feel safe. I love that. I love that other meaning of space where it's like this container. And, and for a coach to do that, you also have to have a space for yourself. You have to come into the space with so having true. already created it. Mm -hmm. uh, and to have that presence. So that's, that's fascinating. Uh, so how do we create space for ourselves and live a flourishing life? Number one is S, which is self-awareness and self-regulation. So it begins with self-awareness. And this is where you can see if we have a broad framework within each of these, we've got five to 10 practices. So depending mm -hmm. on what, depending on what I'm needing during the day, I'm going to lean on the S or the P or the A or the C or the E. 
So S is self-awareness, self-regulation, or even self-mastery. It means being able to control ourselves. It's the root of emotional intelligence. P is positive mindset. In a world that's really challenging and there's no end to the stresses we might face, and many of them are imagined, how can we then level the playing field, this tend, tendency to see the negative in things, this bias that we all have, and there are ways to do that, cognitive behavioral therapy, re reframing practices, etc. So P is positivity. How can I cultivate what I want to experience in my life and create space for others to feel that? And that comes in the form of a sense of marvel or awe and wonder, a sense of amusement and intrigue and curiosity and love and gratitude, optimism, hope, triumph, you name it. This is how I want my life to feel. And it does not always feel that way. So step two is the P is positive mindset. How do I do that? A is now shifting from the inner work towards the outer world, this interface. A is about alignment. How do I align what now is most important to me with what the world is needing or what the person in front of me is needing? Because we have to honor both. It's not about me or you. It's about we. And so aligning you and me and aligning within myself the words that I use, my behaviors, and what my core values are. So that's the A. And then once I've gotten alignment, I've got a positive mindset, I'm self-regulated, I've got my steady heart, now I'm ready to do the, the work that for me is the most beautiful part of this whole thing, which is the C, which is about connection, connection okay. and compassion. Yes. And this is where on an individual level, a family level, we're talking about how can I listen more deeply to those in my life? So this would be one practice today. I can do a checkbox in my journal. Did I listen deeply to my wife? Did I listen deeply to the needs of my children? Did I ask the, the right questions? And simply by tracking that, I become a better listener. So that's the C, and we can apply this in the workplace as well with our teams. We can bring, bring these skills of, so of empathy, yeah, that empathy right. and compassion. And then, and then the last one, and we can dive into any of these, or we can move on to other aspects about mindfulness or compassion science. Um, e is about engagement. It's kind of like that X factor. Like I've got everything else, but I still don't quite feel like I'm remembering important parts of my life. Engagement means, can I be present with every moment? Can I be fully with you right now, Chad? Yeah. yeah. Can I feel as you're speaking with your baritone voice, can I not just hear it? Can I stop myself from thinking what I'm going to say next? But can I feel the vibration of your voice in my sternum? And can I notice what's happening to my heart as you're speaking to me? This is what I consider to be deep engagement with life. I love those. None of them sounded like you, like a forced rhyme. It's a, it, none of them sounded like you made them up to make the acronym. The, and they're they're profound. I love those. We're 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 going to use those. <laughs> well, thank much, you. Uh, that's it took very me about, memorable. It took me about ten years uh, to come up with it. And once I read the quote by Viktor Frankl about the space and response. And I read that in Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective mm -hmm. People. Mm -hmm. I read that quote. I read about uh, Viktor Frankl. And I said, whatever I finally come up with, this solution to help me through my own suffering, I want it to be memorable. And so that's where the S-P-A-C-E came from. You know, um, speaking of the the workplace, uh, I've, I've um, got a certification in doing 360s and, you know, which at first doing a 360 sounds like, you know, you would rather tear off a nail or something. It just doesn't <laughs> sound like something you, you know, I get it. I really do. But 
there is this gentleness in raising, it's not a personality profile. And there are these, you can see in leaders for, for like leaders, you can see it graphically mapped out the, the three areas, which we would call reactionary. Um, and they are, are you complying? Are you protecting? And are you controlling? And that's more when we are in what you so well described earlier, that I'm in fear, and this is how I respond to it. And it works. And that's why I do it, even though it does come at a cost. Mm. And the other there's five other main categories of how you can be in more creative space Mm. as a leader. And I won't name all of them. One of them is self-awareness, but it does tie into this idea of space. When you are more aware and you see, say, in a profile, hey, this is how I'm evaluating myself. And this is how other people are evaluating me. Some of them may be the same. Some of them may be different. Mm. Uh, How can I with intention apply a humanistic framework such as what you're describing and if you reconnect in yourself i can see how you're you're able to engage in potential stressful environments in a sustainable way Mm. um and and i think that's what you're talking about and you also actually you you also talk about what do I do when I can't do an entire practice and I'm in the middle of, of things at the hospital and, and it's stressful? How can I recompose and rebalance myself? Mm, yeah. It's, right. Like, yeah. what do you say to that? Like, how do you just in the middle of the stress, just recenter? Yeah, I, I think just in the same way that your previous guests have talked about micro stresses, we can create moments of micro sanctuary for ourselves. Whoa, mm. that's beautiful. And so thank you. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and because we need more sanctuary, we feel, I, I can speak for myself that I feel often disconnected, uh, kind of bounced around as I'm going from errand to errand or work, you know, from work to home, et cetera. And so when I feel that sense of quiet and stillness, um, there's something that's restorative for me. And, I don't have time to sit on the cushion for a half an hour uh, or an hour most of the time. Um, I'll take a week and on vacation as I did a few years ago and just went to a Zen monastery and sat in total, mm. total silence for seven days. How can we compress that seven-day experience into seven seconds? And it, I believe to some degree it's possible. There, is, there are so many opportunities, Chad, during each and every day to chip away at those micro moments of stress or... I was thinking about the metaphor of, you know, the game Jenga, like you oh, put yeah. one stick and one stick. Well, if we think about micro stresses, this little, someone says the wrong thing here. I get a bad text message. I, someone is sick in my family. These are the little pieces of Jenga. Well, what's going to happen unless we start taking those away from the top? Eventually it's going to topple at the end of the day. Often when we get home to our kids and wife and our family, then it topples. So these practices are ways of seeing those pile up and sometimes saying, no, thanks, don't add it, which means saying no to someone else's request. That's mm-hmm. often a powerful micro, micro moment of sanctuary, protecting mm-hmm. our own needs, saying no. Once we have our plate that's already full and we've found ways to take things off our plate, we can regulate our nervous system with a simple grounding practice, which literally right now we can just feel our feet on the ground. 
every sensation, the tingling, the vibration, maybe there's some numbness, some circulation, pulsation, whatever it is, opening our awareness to sensations that were already there a minute ago, but you and I weren't paying attention to our feet. We yeah, were in conversation. bringing it back to the body. So bring it back to the body. So that would be one micro practice, feet. Another one would be bring it into your hands. Right now I'm noticing there's a coolness on the backs of my hands and a warmth in the front. And particularly using the breath to our advantage. And as a cardiologist, the breath is fascinating for me because if you come into my office and I notice you're breathing faster or slower, I can predict what your heart rate is going to do. And if I want to slow your heart rate down in the office, I'll ask you to take a nice deep breath into your belly and to exhale completely and slowly. And your heart rate will slow down. Your blood pressure will drop. And that takes just a few seconds. So that's one of the most powerful micro sanctuary practices is a deep breath. And then any way we can to move away from what's keeping us caught in stress, which is often thoughts in the mind, worries about the future, ruminations about the past. Mm -hmm. The only escape for that is in this moment. And the only ever present element of this moment is the body and the movements of the body and the, and the, the energy that's coming in and out our sense organs. That's it. And so any way you want during the day that you can tap in, whether it's seeing a bird and naming it bird, whether it's listening to some music and listening for the space between the notes, not the notes themselves, whether it's getting caught in traffic instead of noticing your frustration, noticing the color red of the lights in front of you and just absorbing that energy there. So when you're drinking your coffee, instead of drinking it as, as it's spilling and you're running into the garage to get into your car, can you stop and smell the coffee? Can you feel the warmth of your hand? Can you feel it moving down your throat? These are anyone who's done mindfulness and meditation practices, as you know, these are all aspects of those practices. I would recommend if someone hasn't, it's a great place to start. Wow, those are terrific. Lots of lots of ideas there. And I know you have lots of ideas. What a delightful conversation that's been. But your book isn't quite out yet. You just say you you, you just posted that you got some uh, editorial feedback and it's going to be a little while. Well, tell us, since we can't get your book, tell us uh, where we can go to learn more about you, your work, maybe your summit, and you know when we'll be able to get a copy. Oh, thanks for asking, Chad. Uh, the summit, if you want to find out what, what happened at the summit, uh, we had, I was, I decided I wanted to get people inside of healthcare and outside. So I, I connected with Ariana Huffington and I interviewed her and a lot of other people. There's something called endingcliniciansburnout.com. And okay. we've had yearly events and we're going to have another event next year, online, offline. President of the American Medical Association approached me last year. So we hosted him and I had a conversation with him and some others. So um, there should be some recordings there, and you can find find that information. Uh, in terms of finding me, it's very easy. Uh, I, I, w I was happy as a kid, and then I wasn't happy anymore. And my goal was to find a path to sustainable joy and happiness. And then I realized that that actually was good for my own heart, the physical heart, and for my patients. And so happy heart MD, one word, happy heart MD. You okay. can find, and I'm most active on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and on YouTube. Uh, and then the last thing is in terms of the book, it's coming out early 2024. The book is called Just One Heart, and it's about how to train your mind to heal your heart. And that's the work that I do for myself. I do for my patients. I do for a team of 38,000 healthcare workers who I'm responsible for in my role as an organizational well-being leader. So 
just one heart. The idea is that there, there is no separation between the physical, emotional, and spiritual. There is no separation between your heart and your heart's health and mine. How I treat you impacts your heart health and vice versa. And if we extend that ripple effects outwards to our society and the rifts that we're seeing, we can start to heal some of the wounds by remembering that we have just one heart. That is such a, I love that message. I've been thinking about that lately. Uh, the very word analyze means to break apart into parts. And it does help us be able to remember things and understand how they function. But in the end, to, there's this total connection between the brain, the emotions, and the heart. They're all here in this body. <laughs> Right. So I love that. Well, we are, we're going to put all of this in the show notes. That's awesome. And Hey, let me know when the book comes out. Well, I'll write a review. I know that they're hard to get on, uh, on Amazon. Thank so you. yeah, definitely. Um, Jonathan Fisher, thank you so much for your time sharing your hard won wisdom and, and life experiences with the big self community. Thank you so much, Chad. This has been a real pleasure, and I love the work that you're doing and helping people tap into that big self. Thank you. If you liked today's episode, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple iTunes or just hit that subscribe button and keep them coming? Thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time.